welcome to Spotlight, a Bournemouth University podcast exploring the people and stories behind the research. On today's episode, we speak to Professor Adrian Newton about the impact we're having on the environment around us and what we can do to reverse the damage. From forest fires to bleaching of the Great Barrier Reef, it's clear to see that our environment is in trouble with many ecosystems on the verge of collapse. With the COP26 United Nations Conference on the horizon, the eyes of the world will be on climate change and how we can tackle rising temperatures and an increasing impact on our environment. Professor Adrian Newton has spent his career studying changes to our ecosystems, including their collapse and recovery. So, is there still hope? Can we reverse this decline and help restore our environment? Or have we reached the point of no return? I spoke to Adrian to find out. Adrian, thank you very much for joining us today. Could you start just by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, no, I'm really delighted to chat and uh, thanks for the invitation. Yeah, I'm a professor in conservation ecology at Bournemouth University. Been here a while now, and uh, but this is the latest of a series of jobs that I've had. So I've moved around and my career sort of moved from one thing to another. But the main thread that links all my activities together is this um, real interest in how humans affect the environment. So what human impacts have on uh, biodiversity, which is another word for wildlife, if you like, or nature. Another word might be ecosystems. I'm very keen on on them at the moment. But I started out my old career really focusing on tree species. That's really what got me uh, started. And then my interest has sort of expanded over time. But, uh, But I still love my trees. And where did that passion stem from? Was there a particular incident that you can think back to that really sparked that um, interest in trees and, and nature around us? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think like a lot of people, I was really um, switched onto this by a really good school teacher. It goes right back to when I was at school. And I was thinking about this the other day because we have near us here in Bournemouth some fantastic sand dunes. Now, they don't have any trees on them at all, but uh, I was out there the other day at, at Studland and uh, looking at the amazing vegetation succession you get on sand dunes. And I was out there with the National Trust chatting about that. And it rem- took me right back to being back at school where that was the first field trip I ever had as a, as a kid. And it just blew me away. I was just so excited to be out there and to see these patterns. So vegetation isn't just a big blob. You don't just see a big patch of forest or something it has pattern in it and that was a revelation to me and uh, we spent like a lot of our students do and school kids still do at Studland uh, we measured how the vegetation changes over the dunes and it's it's a strategy you can follow it and understand it so understanding the basis of this pattern I thought this was just marvelous and I asked my teacher well what is it what are we doing and he said well it's called ecology and I thought, right, that's what I want to do. But what was really interesting is my teacher didn't really like ecology. He said, I don't, I don't really rate it. I just have to teach it. But it really switched me on. And I've been grateful ever since to my teacher for, uh, uh, for igniting that interest. And as you say, we have some amazing sort of landscapes around us here in Bournemouth. So is that something that you've particularly enjoyed exploring um, over your career? Yeah, that was a major reason for, for coming to Bournemouth. I mean, in, in previous jobs, I lived in in places like Cambridge and up in Scotland, which is also fantastic. But it's uh, what's lovely about down here, the first thing to say is Dorset is viewed as what's called a biodiversity hotspot. In other words, 
it has more species in it than any other part of England. It's absolutely extraordinary. So it has some of the richest areas for plant species, for reptiles, insects and uh, birds and so on. So it really is incredibly rich. So it's been an absolute joy and, and pleasure to spend time in our local ecosystems and uh, and also just over the border into into Hampshire. So I spent a lot of time researching in the new forest. So and again a lot of our students go out and enjoy these places, but they really are very, very special. Uh, not only at a national scale, but at an international scale. And what changes have you seen then to the ecosystems both locally and nationally and internationally over your career and your time researching um, the environment around us? I've been doing this a while now and uh, uh, one of the things I have on my desktop is old photographs that I've taken in the past that pop up. So I get these reminders and I had one the other day of of what I did as as a student. So uh, I was on a big expedition to, um, as an undergraduate, to the ice cap right at the southern tip of South America, it's Patagonia. And that was the first time I'd ever been to a place that was really wild in the sense that no people ever went there. It was so isolated. You had to travel by many days uh, through these fields by boat to get there. So it was very exciting to be in a place that was, uh, if you like, completely pristine. Uh, there was no no sign of any human impact. So that's that's always been in my mind. Now, I've often thought, well, what's that place like today? Well, amazingly, a Greenpeace did a, a special mission down there just a year or two back. I was so excited to see they videoed the whole thing. They went to more or less exactly where I was and they filmed the glaciers and they took with them an, an explorer who had actually crossed this amazing ice cap that they have on the Andes in, in Patagonia. So he'd crossed it, I think, in the 50s. And they took him back there to say, OK, how has it changed? The same question you're asking me. And of course, what's happened is the glaciers have retreated hugely and uh, and because of climate change. And actually, I could see big changes even since I was there in the 80s. So, yeah, I've been doing this long enough now to see some real, really big changes, not only in terms of things like ice retreating, which it's doing uh, everywhere, but uh, things like forest declining in areas. So places I, I know really well, like, like Chile and Argentina, I've been working for many years there. Um, there's just a lot more people now than there were, uh, you know, 30, 40 years ago. And the forest has declined, yes, in area, but also there's been some very positive development. So that part of Chile now, uh, which I saw logging, as this, they were logging it in the central Chile when I visited that area as a student back in the 80s. Now it's part of the world's biggest protected area, I think, and uh, which is really, really exciting. So there's been some positive changes as well as negative ones. And do you think that's something that we've seen over the last sort of 20 years or so, more of an understanding of the impact that we're having, people caring about the impact that we're having on our our environment and wanting to make a difference? Yeah, well, that's another really interesting point. Um, I mean, if you again, if you wind the clock back to sort of the 80s, tropical rainforest became an issue for the first time and you had um, people like Sting going out and, you know, making a big fuss at previous uh, but things like biodiversity convention, COPS, he was there uh, raising the plight of Amerindian uh, tribal groups. So that started to put it on the map. So I've seen, if you like, that whole that whole process sort of extend through time. And, it, and it's really good to see that, uh, you know, there is increasing concern around uh, the loss of forests even today. But what's certainly changed is this concern about climate change really has grown, particularly, I think, in the last um, 
a decade or two. Yes, absolutely true. So, yeah, I mean, I think people, lots of people do really love nature and they see what's happening out there and they're concerned about it. And But a lot of people do still get frustrated about the lack of action. And uh, although there have been some positive, still huge problems out there to to be resolved. So you have people like Greta Thunberg, who's a big heroine of mine, you know, banging the drum saying, we need to, we have all the science we need, let's go and do something. So yeah, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to that. And so on a global level, then what is happening to our environment and to our ecosystems? And what is causing that? Well, that's, yeah, that's a massive question. But I'll try, I'll try to be brief. As you know, I've just written this book about um, ecosystem collapse and recovery. Uh, and I was really inspired through to write that because I was asking that same question of myself, what really is happening out there? And I was really struck, if you wind the clock back about five years, 2016, 2017, there was this massive event in the Great Barrier Reef of Australia. Now this is the biggest living structure on earth and one of the most species rich. And at the same time, it supports a huge uh, economy worth many millions of dollars a year. So hugely important, in terms of species conservation, but also in terms of human livelihoods. And this underwent a massive change in that time. A lot of the coral bleached, so uh, the, the symbionts that live inside the coral left, they, they just, as the water warms up, you get this bleaching event as the algae leave the coral animals, and basically the coral dies as a result. And you get this huge uh, loss of species, many of the fish species die and, and so on. And, you know, the, the, the researchers working on it, were reduced to tears, a really dramatic, large-scale dieback of the Great Barrier Reef. So, And that was reported in the media as an example of ecosystem collapse. Now, a very what they're meaning there is a very abrupt, sudden change in this ecosystem. And I was really struck by that because as a scientist, I'd not really seen this term ecosystem collapse used much. It's a very new term in the literature. But there were the media and journalists were saying, Ah, this is what's happening. Our ecosystems are collapsing. So that's why I wrote this book. And it's basically for me to teach myself, for me to learn just what is happening out there. And what I did was compile as many examples as I could of this kind of thing happening. And the the, the answer is yes. It's uh, There are many, many examples throughout the world of ecosystems suffering very abrupt change. And this is clearly intensifying. And if there's one lesson that I got from reading all of these hundreds and hundreds of scientific papers on this was, the over, again, the overriding importance of climate change. There are these other pressures out there, for example, the spread of agriculture, deforestation, uh, urban spread, the spread of invasive species. There are many ways that humans are affecting nature. And I've been studying lots of these over the years, but I really learned that climate change has the potential to be far more important than any of these and uh, because it can cause this very sudden change in large ecosystems. And how resilient are our ecosystems then? Can they recover? I think your work has explored the idea of this tipping point, the point of which it's really difficult for them to kind of come back and recover. Yeah, resilience is a a word that's become very popular, for example, in policy circles. Uh, you talk to foresters in Britain, for example, at the moment, they think, well, how do we manage a forest so it's resilient to these kinds of pressures? Things like climate change or the spread of diseases, which is a big thing affecting our native trees right now. So, yeah, I think every ecosystem has the ability to tolerate 
some degree of change and disturbance is a thing that's a, a natural element of all existence. All of all existence are dynamic. So if you like, they're adapted to a certain degree of disturbance. If you go to a place like California, which has been in the news recently with all these fires, actually fires are part of the, um, the if you like the tradition of those ecosystems. A lot of the species, even the giant redwoods, are adapted to fire and in fact need a certain amount of fire in order to regenerate. But what's changing is things like the intensity of that fire and the frequency of that fire. And there are other things out there happening too. So as our weather, as our climate is changing, we're getting in Britain, for example, a lot of drought now, which we weren't getting before. Summer drought, and yet our winters are getting wetter. And it's that exact combination that's actually moving some of our forests, our native forests, again, out of that sort of historical pattern of variation into a new arena. And uh, I've been working a lot on the beech trees and the beech forests and the new forests. They're dying. They're dying back. And it's because of climate change. And so if you like, in that sense, they're no longer resilient. They can't cope with that degree of change because so much change is happening so quickly and it's if you like taking these ecosystems almost out of their comfort zone it's not what they're used to and that's what's causing these big abrupt changes and is there anything we can do about this on an individual scale or does it require that sort of large scale um government interventions we've obviously got the cop 26 climate change conference coming up the eyes of the world will be on that conference to come up with some solutions to some of these problems that we're facing but is there anything we as individuals can do or is it reliant on kind of governments really stepping up and taking that action well, I think we need both is the short answer. So there's no doubt that you need action at the international scale to address what is an international problem. We all need to work together uh, at the global scale to address this global problem of climate change, plus all of these other pressures on biodiversity that, uh, uh, that are happening. But there's no doubt. I, I mean, uh, I used to work in the United Nations, so I'm a big believer in governments working together to solve these problems. But at the end of the day, govern governments can only do so much. And uh, they can legislate, they can create policies and laws uh, to encourage people to behave in, in a certain way. But at the end of the day, we need to change our individual behaviour, don't we? And it's all around reducing emissions. And uh, I pledge that my next vehicle will be an electric one. You know, it's that kind of thing, isn't it, that we need to do. And uh, I, I, again, just, just researching this and learning more about it and just how important climate change is. I think a lot of us haven't really quite grasped yet how profound this really is, how big a problem it is. And if you go back, as I did in, in my book, and look at previous examples of massive changes in the Earth system, there's been this happening. You know, if you look at the fossil record, another thing we have here in Dorset, fantastic fossils. If you look back through the fossil record, you see that at various times there's been these mass extinction events where a lot of the animals and plants, a lot of the biodiversity on Earth died very rapidly. And what's really striking is that almost every single one of these events was associated with massive climate change, often driven by volcanic eruptions, putting a lot of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And that's what we're doing now. We're almost simulating volcanic eruptions on an epic scale and doing exactly what these volcanoes did in the past and we know what the outcomes will be really profound massive change if we're not careful so yeah we definitely need that government action but we we each need to play our part 
And I suppose that's the difference this time around. We know it's happening and we know we can do something about it. So it's on us to to take that action to stop that catastrophic event um, happening. That's a really good point, isn't it? So in a way, we're, pri- we're in a privileged position uh, that we actually know what's happening. Yeah, we actually understand it. So yeah, we do know we, we do know what we need to, to do about it. Um, uh, but at the same time, we're rather wedded to these livelihoods that we have. And of course, we have to remember a large part of the world's population aren't as privileged as we are, aren't as wealthy and don't have access to all these things. And they, they know they, they're aspiring to a better life. And that's totally uh, legitimate, isn't it? And something that we, we can all aspire to and, and, and encourage. So the big question, therefore, is how do we enable people to improve their livelihoods while at the same time addressing this climate problem? And the answer there is another thing that we do at Bournemouth. We, te- we have this fabulous course that, uh, that, that my colleagues and I developed on the green economy. I think the solutions are all there. It's a master's course where we teach, uh, we explore these issues, but well, exactly what kind of economy could we have that could enable people to meet the aspirations that they have, a secure job, you know, if you like a sustainable livelihood. How can, how can we find these ways of, of supporting that while at the same time addressing these environmental issues? I think that's the, the central issue of our time, really, and it's, a real, it's really exciting to see our students coming up with solutions on that course. And so what are those kind of core changes then that would help us transition into that green economy? I think it's one one of those things where there are many, many different routes to this better future. And uh, one of the things, for example, we go back to nature and how we deal with that. One of the ideas that's really captured the imagination of a lot of our students is rewilding. This is the idea of allowing nature to sort of recover naturally and just see what happens. And this, you know, there's been some amazing, I was connected with the project, a rewilding project that's been running about 20 years now when I lived in Scotland, we started it. What was a bare hillside uh, of intense farming is now a wild forest again for the first time in thousands of years, in fact. And that really gives you hope because it shows that actually ecosystems can have this power of recovery. Sometimes all we need to do is give them a, a helping hand. And what we're seeing now is projects like that spreading all over the UK, not just the UK, other countries too. And even right here in Dorset, there's some very exciting new initiatives. Uh, for example, one led by the, the Wildlife Trust out at Pier Regis, just starting now. The idea they bought a farm, uh, the councils are involved, the Wildlife Trust and various other organisations to buy this farm and then rewild it, let nature recover. And I think that's a very, very exciting thing because not only does it help nature, it will also capture carbon and start to contribute to uh, the, addressing this climate change issue. So uh, there's some really powerful things we can do around land use. But a lot of the other things we explore in the course will be very familiar to you. It's things like green technology, uh, you know, um, green energy, uh, reducing our consumption uh, and so on. There are many, many strands to this green economy that we need to create. And as well as looking to the future, you're also part of the Institute for Modelling um, Socio-Environmental Transitions, IMSET, at Bournemouth University, which looks at how ancient populations responded to changes in their environment, changes to their climate, and whether there's anything we can learn from that. This is a very exciting initiative, and we're very fortunate that the university has invested uh, in appointing some some dynamic young new staff, which is always lovely to see people at the beginning of their careers. And we've managed to get a a group of these early career researchers together, plus some uh, more established people such as myself, to really start to think about this. 
Could it be that some of the answers to these challenges that we now face lie in human history within the past? And I actually came across a bit of this when uh, when writing my ecosystem collapse book, because there's been some extraordinary human uh, stories in there that if you start to look at the whole span of human history, of course, as a species, we've seen some massive changes in the past. I mean, we were, I was just reading the other day some fantastic discoveries made again in, in our department by colleagues such as Matthew Bennett, where they've been looking at human footprints uh, covered from even before this recent ice age, but back to the, a previous one, so it's about 200,000 years old, which is amazing. So humans have been around a long time and they've been affecting the environment for a long time. And um, as of course, as we go further back, we have less and less evidence about what these people actually did. But we know, for example, uh, around the ice ages, they hunted a lot of big animals. A lot of big animals went extinct, things like mammoths. And there was actually a whole ecosystem disappeared. The mammoth steppe, which covered large parts of northern Eurasia, which was a very species-rich grassland with many, many animal species on it. A lot of these uh, were hunted and also maybe suffered from, from climate change, but went extinct. And that ecosystem disappeared with them. So we know that humans can have massive impacts on, on the environment, on the biosphere. Can there be some positives there, though, too? Can we actually learn how human societies over time, if you start to think of the whole development of, of urban civilizations, the onset of agriculture, it's one of the things we're looking at. We have colleagues in IMSET looking at that, the, the spread of agriculture as it begins. And we now know it came from the Near East and spread through Europe. What impacts did that have environmentally? And what were the people thinking? Were they, were they challenged by things like soil erosion as they started to... To, to cut the forest down and cultivate these new crops that had only recently been domesticated, a lot of the soil just washed away. And uh, how did they cope with that? And of course, there's been climate changes too over the past few thousand years, some of them quite profound. And uh, so I think, again, there's maybe scope to learn from, if you, if you like, the resilience this time, not of the ecosystem, but of the human societies living in these places, having to cope with these challenges. And so having written your book and, as you say, kind of looked across um, long periods of time and across the world at our ecosystems, how are you feeling? Are you feeling positive and um, encouraged by the fact that ecosystems are resilient and people start to be taking action? Or are you worried about what the future might hold? <laughs> well, like a lot of other people, I'm uh, I'm a big fan of dystopian fiction. It's something I was brought up on, actually. And I've always been a great lover of science fiction, that kind of thing. Uh, but this, I, I read something the other day that really made me think. At the moment, we have a lot of this kind of dystopian uh, films and stories in our, in our popular culture. And it's sort of creating a mindset that, oh, things are really bad. <laughs> and... Um, uh, and they could get worse. And of course, that's true. But in a weird way, if you have these narratives out there, they can almost be self-fulfilling. And it really struck me that well, actually what we need is a narrative of hope, a narrative around positivity. And I think, again, particularly for our students who are just beginning you know, their, their professional lives, hope is incredibly important. So in, the, in my book, I, fin I tried to finish with a message of of, of hope and the things that have given me hope. And you're right, the most powerful of those for me is this amazing ability ecosystems have to recover, to be resilient, to actually 
cope with the changes that are thrown at them. We know from, from history that, that species and ecosystems are amazingly uh, adaptable. Um, so there's always hope there in terms of uh, recovery. And of course, as I say, rewilding is part of that. It's fantastic now to see things like beavers coming back into doors when they've been absent for hundreds of years. We have white-tailed and sea eagles on the Isle of Wight, not far from us, just being reintroduced. And, and red kites now flying overhead. There's a, there was this amazing photograph the other day of a population of storks all, all on somebody's roof in the New Forest that come over from the rewilding project in, in Sussex. So these are really potent symbols of recovery, I think, and positive things that can be done that we can all take joy in and, and benefit from. So yeah, I do, I do have hope. The other thing is that people are incredibly um, resourceful, aren't they? And, uh, you know, I, I'm never, I can never get over this amazing fact that the most complex object we know of in the entire universe lies right here between our, our ears. And so that gives us hope, doesn't it? That, um, you know, the next generation maybe can start to come up with solutions to the kind of problems that the, their ancestors have caused. So I think it's really important we encourage young people, our students, to, to be hopeful and positive because we need to envision the kind of future that we all want so that we can create it. And if we don't imagine it in our stories, in our films and and so on, and it'll never happen. So I think that, that that positive narrative is a really important one. It seems like we have reason to stay positive, thanks to the resilience of both the human spirit and our ecosystems. But we all need to play our part in making changes to protect and preserve our environment for future generations to enjoy. Thanks for listening. Join us next time on Spotlight and subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes and Spotify to hear more from Bournemouth University.